Well, good morning, IBC family. I got to say, I love the responsiveness to that song. Good job. You're turning black. <laughs> it's good. I love it. Pastor Mike's already said, we need, all need to go to a black church so we can kind of know how to have, be a little more responsive. So I think uh, you're doing your homework, I think. So, you know, uh, last night I uh, was sitting on the couch and I came to this realization. I'm not sure if you did or not, but guess what? Today is a change. We're gaining daylight. Seconds, probably. So that's a good thing. Um, Our plaid brothers and sisters right over here, I just want to call you out. The Paul Bunyan lumberjack group right over here. They are actually a Bible study, and now they are color coordinating. So good job, you guys. I love that. (laughs) That has nothing to do with our message this morning. Um. Barna Research, uh, some of you are probably aware of that corporation. They do a lot of uh, research studies, kind of the state of the church, uh, trends that they can pick up over years and uh, trying to identify different patterns. Earlier this year, they came out with a study called the State of Evangelism. And uh, of course, like every study and like all statistics, everything has to be somewhat qualified and there's always counter st- statistics to, to kind of, uh, I guess, massage the information and the content, but at least according to this well-renowned uh, research company called Barna, uh, in their state of evangelism study, they identified uh, some interesting statistics and one statistic that kind of stood out was this, is that, and I'm not throwing them under the bus, but at least in the millennial generation, um, 73% of millennials says they were prepared to share the gospel if given the opportunity. But 47% said they thought that evangelism was actually a bad thing. So it seems somewhat conflicting that they're ready to share, but they also say that evangelism is actually not a good thing. Uh, and of course, some other people have chimed in on the conversation, Ligonier Ministries, even Christianity Today kind of chimed in, well, saying, well, it's not that they don't, they don't say evangelism is bad per se, they just do it in a different way. So, and, and some of that is actually true. So maybe the, the classic st- strategies of the 90s may not be adopted by millennials and they may have a different approach to reaching people with the gospel, but in the end, everybody was universal in, or at least in consensus with this fact that conversions are on rapid decline in Western church. And it's interesting, when you think about most evangelistic efforts are targeted towards adults, and yet 75, 76% of conversions are 17 years of age and younger. Excuse me. So it kind of puts things in perspective a little bit. Conversions on the decline. It's interesting also when you look at church growth, Sometimes we get, uh, at least in the world in which I live and serve, we see that uh, churches are growing, but not always, because even every church that is kind of exploding or every new church that is kind of on the verge and is kind of pushing the envelope, maybe is even considered trendy by many people, the reason why they grow is not because of conversion. More often the case is because of transference. 
So churches oftentimes grow because of transference. In other words, what I mean is people are coming from other churches to a different church for a variety of reasons. And usually what that means is when a church is growing, other churches are dying or already dead. In fact, they're saying, I won't even give you a statistic, but the number of churches closing their doors permanently every single year is pretty staggering. And yet Jesus says the harvest is plentiful. According to Jesus, he says the harvest is plentiful. In our text here this morning in the Gospel of Matthew, we come into kind of a transition passage, if you will. And you might recall maybe from chapter four, just after Jesus went into the wilderness to be tested and he passed the testing, we see that after that point, Matthew gives a kind of summary sentence or a summary paragraph describing what Jesus' ministry looks like. And we see that in, in chapter 4, verse 23, it says this, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So we see teaching that part of Jesus' ministry was about teaching, like the Sermon on the Mount. And we also see that his, part of his ministry was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And then thirdly, we see that he's healing all the sicknesses and the diseases The healing of Jesus' ministry was not only a validation of who he was as a person, but it also validated his message. And now this morning we see at the very end of chapter 9, we see kind of a book in transition. I don't know if your mind thinks this way, but Matthew's gospel and all the books of the Bible are very structured They're not just, let me just start writing and see how the Spirit leads. The Spirit is definitely leading and inspiring these authors, but they're very structured. They're very organized and planned out. And so we come into a kind of a bookend. In other words, for the last two chapters, we've kind of got a snapshot of what Jesus' ministry looks like. And now we're transitioning with another summary of his ministry, but Jesus is getting ready to prepare to send out his 12 disciples to go and do the same thing. After all, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. The point here being there is much work to be done according to Jesus, but there are also a, there's a significant need for more laborers. In other words, there's much work to be done, but there are very few people doing it. Notice, I did not say there are very few people to do it. I said there are very few people doing it. But if you and I were to truly grasp our identity as a Christian, if you and I were to truly understand our identity as a follower of Jesus, then you and I would agree in this sense that everyone who identifies with Jesus Christ is automatically commissioned to make disciples of Jesus. In other words, being a witness for Christ is not an optional pursuit. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 5.20, he says, we are Christ's ambassadors. We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Now, as is often the case, 
The issue probably has less to do, especially if you've been walking with Jesus for some time. The issue for us, perhaps, has less to do with knowing that we are commissioned to go and make disciples. The issue has more to do with how do we do that? We know what we're supposed to do. The question is, how do we actually do that? How does a disciple of Jesus make disciples? How do you and I fulfill our God-given ministry in making disciples? If you're following along in your sermon notes and your bulletin, the theme for our time here this morning is this. We make disciples of Jesus by following the example of Jesus. Pretty straightforward. We make disciples of Jesus by following the example of Jesus. But it kind of begs the question, How did Jesus do it? How did Jesus make disciples? What does it mean to follow the example of Christ? We have five observations in our text here this morning that we're gonna kind of unpack. Now, it's interesting that these observations, this is not so Matthew-esque because Luke was a man of detail. The gospel writer Luke, he was a man of detail. He included all kinds of feelings. He included all the five emotions. Matthew was not so much focused on emotions. Matthew, was his whole purpose was showing that Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Jesus is the one we've been waiting for all these many years. But yet in this text, he does kind of elaborate a little more fully. And we see five observations about his ministry that you and I, I believe, can glean from and how we too are called to make disciples of Jesus. The first observation is this. Following the example of Jesus means we go to the people. Following the example of Jesus means we go to the people. Verse 35, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. It kind of resonates with what Matthew 28 will say, and you guys know this as the Great Commission passage, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Now it's interesting, there are two observations within this observation that I believe we can kind of take away and it's important for us to understand. When you understand the word go or as Jesus went, there are kind of two ways of going or two ways of Jesus going. First of all, we see that Jesus did not wait for others to merely come to him. So if we're gonna follow the example of Jesus, to follow his example as he did it, we are to go, not wait for people to come to us. Now, of course, if you follow Jesus' ministry as we are doing, you see that many people came to Jesus. And we see that many Jesus, as as Jesus went around about his ministry, many people followed Jesus, watching what he was doing, listening to what he was saying, but Jesus was always on mission. He went to all the cities and all the villages, implying that he went everywhere. Yes, people came to him. Yes, people followed him, but that did not deter him for what he knew his father was leading him to do. He did not wait for people to come. He pursued the people. He took initiative. That's one aspect of going. The second aspect of going is he made himself available for people. 
This might be a little counterintuitive to our understanding of going, but Jesus made himself available for people. His going meant that he was uh, available for the re- to respond to the needs of people. In other words, he was willing to take the necessary time to meet the needs of the people. For example, if you look ahead in Matthew chapter 14, Jesus just heard that John the Baptist was beheaded. And he was close to John the Baptist. He loved John the Baptist. And when he hears that John the Baptist is beheaded, he actually removes himself. He escapes to a desolate place to be alone, even from his disciples. He's going by himself, no doubt to mourn. And yet people get wind of that he left and where he's going, and they follow him. And I'm not sure if you can put yourself in Jesus' sandals here, But you're like, all I want to do is be alone right now. My heart is heavy. I'm mourning the loss of a dear friend, even though I know I'm going to be with him forever. And he sees the crowds, and he has compassion on them, and he heals their sick. In other words, he doesn't turn them away. He doesn't evade and hide. He has compassion. The point that I believe we can derive from this going is that going is both an active pursuit and a willingness to respond to the people right in front of you. It's not just a going to people, it is a willingness to respond to the people that are right in front of you. To make this very real, perhaps there might be someone that is in your life that God has been urging you to pursue more intentionally. Or maybe there's someone that you need to to visit even though you know it will require a lot of your energy. Or it might be emotionally draining. Or maybe God is leading you and your family to bless another family this Christmas season even at the expense of of your traditions. Just yesterday I was listening to the radio and I'm not sure, I can't remember who puts it out, but they were, it just kind of, just all of a sudden just kind of took me back for a moment. I couldn't help but stop to not think about it and kind of reflect on the statement that was said. It was a commercial about just the importance of fathers being proactive and available and present with your kids And it was talking about the dad's corny jokes. Maybe you heard the commercial. The point of it is that even though dad's jokes are corny and that was validating in and of itself, the point of that was this. They said this, take a moment to make a moment. Take a moment to make a moment. And as I stopped in the car, or I didn't stop my car, but as I reflected upon that, I was like, you know, how often it is that God leads people into our lives and the question is, am I willing to go by being available to take a moment so that I might make a divine moment by God's grace? We see first off that following Christ means that we go to the people. Secondly, however, we see that the following the example of Jesus means that we see people as Jesus sees people. 
Following his example means we see, Jesus, see people as Jesus sees people. Look at verse 36 with me. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. In other words, the, the exhortation here is that we see people where we are going. We see people that are in front of us. What did Jesus see when he saw the people? He saw harassed and helpless people like a sheep without a shepherd. And this, this shepherding metaphor is really best understood through the lens of, of Ezekiel chapter 34. In Ezekiel chapter 34, we see that Israel's shepherds, the, the leaders, did not fulfill what was expected of them. What was expected of them? Well, they were supposed to strengthen the weak, to heal the sick, to bind the injured, to bring back the stray, to seek out the lost, but instead they ruled harshly and they only cared for themselves and their own needs at the expense of everyone else. And so God calls their bluff and he says, I will provide for your needs and I will strengthen the weak and I will seek and rescue his sheep. I will pursue those in sin. I will protect the sheep from evildoers. And so we see here in Matthew 9, when Jesus looked and saw, he saw victims of poor leadership. He saw victims of harsh dictators. He saw people that were harassed. He saw people as in needy and in need of a shepherd. Let me ask you this, IBC family. What do you see when you see people? What do you see when you look out? What conclusions or thoughts come to your mind? when you walk into various contexts like church or downtown. We've talked about this before, but we are learning together that what you see determines what you do. What you see determines what you do. You see, Jesus, he saw Helpless people in need of a shepherd, and therefore it determined how he responded. But there's some important clarity when it comes to seeing rightly. First of all, we must look or we must see for the purpose of understanding. In a sense, we're asking the question what's really going on here? What's really going on at a heart level in this person's life? When we look, we are looking to understand, to, and in a sense, to diagnose the situation. This doesn't mean that you're supposed to understand everything or that you even can under, understand everything. But you must be willing to look and look long enough in prayer so that the Holy Spirit can inform you about what is really going on and what he wants you to do. After all, since God is reaching people through us, it is important that we listen and therefore act upon what he wants us to do. I think a second aspect of seeing is not only that we look for understanding, but we look to humanize people. You know, I, and I say this from my own personal 
experience. How easy it is to look away at the problems in front of you. How easy it is to look away so that you don't feel obligated to do anything. How easy it is to look away so you don't feel guilty for not doing something. Once again, what you see determines what you do. And the fact is, we cannot follow the example of Jesus Christ if we do not pause long enough to see the person in front of us as Jesus sees them. We cannot follow the example of Jesus Christ if we do not look long enough to let the Spirit of God give us understanding about what's going on in the life of this person. Closely tied to the seeing is the feeling that accompanying that follows it. This is observation number three. Following the example of Jesus not only means that we see people as Jesus sees people, but that we feel as Jesus felt toward people. You see, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, and in turn, he was moved to do something about it. Now, it's important that we understand what do we mean by compassion? What is biblical compassion? Perhaps a certain idea or definition comes to your mind, but it's important to understand how does the Bible describe the compassion of Jesus Christ? We understand as you do a cross-reference of compassion that compassion means to feel deeply. It means to feel inward pain. It means to yearn with mercy. In fact, the word in the Greek actually refers to a deep empathy on a gut level. You feel something in your uttermost being when you see a situation or a person in front of you. In fact, the same word is used in other references like in Philippians 1.8. For God, for God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Or in Colossians 3.12, since God chose you to be holy people he loves, you must clothe yourself with tender-hearted mercy. So compassion is the deepest and really the most genuine form of empathy for another person. You feel it in your uttermost being. That's what compassion is, but that's not just what it is. That's the emotion that accompanies compassion, but compassion is not just an emotional reaction to someone's unfortunate plight. It is not just feeling badly about someone's situation. No, it is an empathy that compels you to action. Biblical compassion is both an emotional response as well as an active response. You can feel bad about someone, but biblical compassion is different in the sense that you act upon what you are feeling. You see, you feel, and you respond. It is the most genuine form of care that leads someone to respond in an appropriate way. In fact, if you look at the life and ministry of Jesus, every time he healed someone, he was first moved with compassion. Every healing account that is elaborated upon is always showing Jesus being moved with compassion first. For example, Matthew 20, the blind men that came to Jesus, Jesus had pity on them and therefore touched their eyes. And Mark 1, the leper, he was moved with pity and then he says, be clean. 
The widow's son in Luke 7, for example, he had compassion on this widow, and therefore he said, young man, I say to you, arise. The point is this, seeing precedes compassion, and compassion precedes action. Or let me say it in a different way. Seeing someone's circumstances clearly evokes a a compassion for that person, like an ache for that person, and in turn compels you to respond or to help in some way. Paul Miller, who wrote, famously wrote A Praying Life, he says this, when we confront a new or difficult situation, we can become confused or overwhelmed. Often we don't even know how to begin, but we can look. We may not feel compassion, but we can concentrate on the other person. By keeping the other person in front of us, we are opening the door to compassion. After all, love begins with looking. Seeing people as Jesus sees people can be the difference between engaging people eagerly and with the gospel and, and meeting their physical needs or doing nothing at all. I always think it's interesting how the Lord puts me in situations as I'm preparing a message. Just this week, I walk out of a coffee shop, working on this message, reflecting, mulling over. I'm like, oh, this is so good. This is so good. This is so practical. Yeah, this is great. And there's a certain homeless woman who I hadn't seen for a very long time who just all of a sudden happened to be around again. And uh, most homeless people don't look you in the eye. She always does. And I'm walking down, and it's just me, and it's just her, and I'm walking up, and she looks at me, and of course she's asking for money. And my initial reaction, again, I'm just fresh off the cuff of looking at this passage, this is so good. And it's like, oh no, there she is again. Ah, oh, man, my shoe all of a sudden seems so interesting right now. I should tie my, oh, I don't even have laces. And so I just kind of do the little head nod and I walk on. Of course, I come out a little bit later and there she is again. And she asked for money straight up and said, you know, I don't actually carry cash. Sometimes for that reason. She's like, well, you got a credit card, don't you? I'm like, oh, man. <laughs> I'm like, yes, I do. <laughs> but right now, I'm, I'm, I, again, I had things that, that was on my schedule. And then I went home later that day, and as I was kind of mulling and wrapping up stuff and busy with other things, I felt a, kind of a huge weight of conviction. And I was like, Lord, I don't feel obligated to change this woman's situation. But here I am, and watching you as you viewed people. And as you looked at people, your heart ached for them. I have not even given this woman a time of day to ache. In fact, I was trying to see, as soon as I saw her, I'm trying to find a way around her. 
And so I said, Lord, if you give me another chance, if I bump into her again, help me to be your hands and your feet. Help me to take the necessary time, regardless of what is on my agenda. I saw her the next morning. She's in a coffee shop, staring at the wall, not paying attention to anybody. And I just go up to her and I put my hand on her shoulder and said, hey, can I refill your coffee for you? And she kind of looks around, scowl on the face, says, sure. I say, you hungry at all? Would you like me to get me one of those? It's like, sure. I get it for her and, and I felt the Lord saying, no, Aaron, it's not just about the food and coffee. Humanize her. And so I said, what's your name? And then this huge toothless grin, just, my name is Maureen. I said, Maureen, I just want you to know that God loves you. And I'd love to pray for you. I said, can I put my hand on your shoulder and just pray for you? She's like, I'd love to pray. You may not want to touch my shoulder. And so I had to pray with her right there. And I went about preparing my message. You see, the day before, I was looking for ways out. I was looking for any opportunity to kind of avoid the need in front of me. And yet when you look at the ministry of Jesus and how he interacted with people, he not only took the time to look, to understand, but he took the time to feel. And it was in his looking and in the compassion of Christ that he responded and met their needs. Following the example of Jesus means that we not only see, but that we feel as Jesus sees and feels. Fourthly, however, it also means that we do what Jesus did. Following the example of Jesus means we do what Jesus did. Again, he went throughout all the cities and all the villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction. As I said before, Jesus' ministry was defined kind of in a threefold way. It was teaching, and uh, that was like the Sermon on the Mount that we spent a long time going through. Then it was uh, proclaiming. By the way, proclaiming means to announce. It wasn't just say, hey, I got a message if, you're, if, you're, you, know, if you have some time, five minutes for me to share. No, proclaiming literally means to announce. It's a, it's a heralding task. My daughter Riley is a proclaimer. She is an announcer, especially when it comes to the triplets. She's the one that likes to say, like on a Sunday morning, release the babies, you know, and she'll just like <laughs> open the door and it's just like, Rah! you know, yeah, or she comes in just like, I announce to you, and again, the point is not, hey, dad, I want to tell you a secret. The point is, I want everyone to stop what you're doing. I want everyone to just forget the conversation you're in right now. Right now, I have something more important. That's what it means to proclaim. To proclaim means to announce, to announce something of grave importance, 
And thirdly, we see that Jesus heals every kind of sickness and every kind of disease, both, as we saw last week, both the physical as well as the spiritual. Now, you might rebuttal in this way, going, if following Jesus means doing what he did, there's no way I can do that because I'm not a miracle worker. Miracle worker. How, how, how in the world can I do that? I can't do what Jesus did. And my answer to you is this. You're right. Of course you can't. Not on your own strength. Of course you can't do what Jesus did in and of yourself. As Jesus says himself in John 15, apart from me, you can do how much? Nothing. Not just some things. You can do nothing unless Jesus, the Spirit of Christ, intervenes and intercedes. But empowered by the Spirit of Christ, you can do anything that God wants to accomplish through you. Think about that. Empowered by the Spirit of Christ, you can do anything that God wants to accomplish through you. Ephesians 2.10, a verse that I refer to often. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has already prepared beforehand that we should just walk in them. 2 Corinthians 6.1, we are working together with him in our gospel appeal. Matthew 28, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. All authority has been given to Jesus. And guess what? As sons and daughters of Jesus, we have the spirit of Christ in us. Which means we have the authority of Jesus in us. And therefore, we are able to do anything he commissions us to do. We must understand that everything we do must be initiated and empowered by the Spirit of Christ. Practically, I believe this means this. We need to stop long enough to hear what God says and then act on his leading. After all, when you look at the the modus operandum of Jesus, when you look at his kind of mode, uh, mode in his ministry, He says this multiple times throughout, I only speak as the Father has given me things to speak and I only do as the Father leads me to do. You see, Jesus was continually in tune with his Father and therefore he was only acting on what his Father was calling him to do. Which means that's why he sometimes did leave the crowds and why he sometimes stayed with the crowds. Which why he sometimes left everybody with his, just his disciples and sometimes he even left his disciples just to be with his father. And this brings us kind of to our final observation here. Following the example of Jesus means we pray for workers. Jesus says to his disciples in verse 37, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, verse 38, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus says the harvest is plentiful. Look out. There are many people ready to hear and receive the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, no doubt when we read something like that, we might make this conclusion It might be kind of a subtle way of Jesus saying, giddy up, let's go. People are dying, people are sick, people don't have a savior. We need to rally and roll here, right? But that's not what Jesus actually asked us to do. 
He doesn't say the harvest is plentiful, so hurry up. He says the harvest is plentiful. The workers are few, so pray. He doesn't say ready, set, go. He says ready, set, pray. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send out. The word for send out means to thrust or to, uh, to throw. It's a very active term. It's not just a, hey, when you're ready, you can kind of start making your way out the front door. He's like, no, ask the Lord, beseech the Lord with a sense of urgency that he would send out laborers into his harvest. Now, it's interesting. I'm not sure if you would ask this question right now, but I asked this question earlier this week. If people are dying all around us and time is of the essence, then isn't it time to act, not pause? Why would Jesus prioritize prayer before action? Because prayer is absolutely essential. Prayer is absolutely prerequisite before we go. After all, how do you know what to really do unless you've received clear instruction to do it, what you need to do? You see, without praying, you go out in your own wisdom. But in prayer, we go out with the wisdom of Almighty God. And brothers and sisters, how easy it is to, to go, maybe even with a lot of passion and enthusiasm, but to go without clear instruction. By the way, if you look at 1 Samuel chapter 15, this is what led to King Saul's disqualification as king. He was told to wait, and he did not wait. He got anxious and antsy, and he went out and took matters in his own hand, and that disqualified him as the first king of Israel. You know how easy it is to be eager to act or to respond to someone's situation without really knowing what we ought to do. We can be full of enthusiasm and sincerity and a drive to come to the aid of another, but if we haven't consulted our Heavenly Father for what He wants us to do, then we labor in vain. As Psalm 127 one says, unless the Lord builds a house, the work of the builders is wasted. Think about it. It's possible and I believe probably more common than we'd like to admit that we can engage the harvest but do so in a manner that is not directed by Jesus. It's not uncommon to be busy in ministry and yet to be busy with things that maybe God has not actually called you to do. Sometimes we might labor diligently only to finally realize that we labor in a place or with a group of people that God hasn't even prepared yet. I was thinking about it this morning, about 4.30 this morning, because our boys are getting up very early. And the thought or the, the mantra that Pastor Tom says often, the Holy Ghost train ride, Right? We're on a Holy Ghost train ride. And then I thought, but how easy it is to be involved and busy on things that are not holy and that are not spirit-led. The question is, are you on the train that is, in fact, conducted by the Holy Ghost? Or are you just kind of taking matters into your own hand 
and pursuing based on your terms and your own limited knowledge and understanding. So Jesus, he exhorts all his disciples. He says, pray, and then you will know how to go. Because faithfulness in this life is not defined by our activity. But faithfulness is defined by being busy with his activity. That is a faithful life. So why does this matter? Worship team, you can come on up, by the way. Why does this matter? Because IBC family, I don't think I need to convince you of this. This matters because there are family members in your family, and there are coworkers that you work with every single day, and there are friends that you are very close to that are dying an eternal death unless someone tells them otherwise it matters because if Jesus is in fact true when he says the harvest is plentiful that means that there are many people waiting to hear and to receive and to be renewed and have a new heart and a new life and a new hope if you are willing to say something I love what the apostle Paul says in Romans 10 How can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone goes and tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That is why the scripture says, how beautiful are the feet of messengers who bring good news. My prayer for you and me as a church is that we would be found faithful. That we'd be found faithful following the example of Jesus by going, by seeing people as he sees people, by feeling a deep sense of compassion as Jesus did, by doing what Jesus did and praying earnestly for God to lead us into divine opportunities that he is preparing in advance. Let me just summarize it with one more statement. May we surrender our will, may we surrender our plans and our desires to the plans and the will and the ways of God so that you and I can reap a bountiful harvest and so Christ will be exalted and God will be glorified. Amen?